But I'm not a bird expert, uh, uh, and and certainly not of note. It, it's I've I've gotten obsessed with a particular group of birds that are very obscure and that not a lot of people have spent much time thinking about. And when that's the circumstance, um, the the bar for expertise is way lower. <laughs> you know, you, you can still be a dumbass and be kind of an expert <laughs> if nobody else is wandering around in there. But I'm always afraid that I'm wrong, or that I've simplified it too much, or that I've, uh, or even that I've drawn the wrong conclusion. But you're in a different uh, boat now because it's not just for your own curiosity. But then sure. you're gonna have to take responsibility for it. Yeah, it's gonna go. <laughs> exactly. Because it's gonna go into print. Somebody's gonna, gonna call like, you on all your dumb shit. Exactly. I can sit at home and speculate all kind all day and tell myself I'm right and I feel great about it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna get into my head oh, and tell man, me that I'm wrong. I'm so right about this. <laughs> Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I'm Anson Mount. And today's show features an interview with Jonathan Myberg. That sound rocking your ears right now is made by his band Shearwater, of which Jonathan is lead songwriter, lead guitarist, and lead the singer, singer and the you know the one person who can't quit. And he's a bona fide rock star. Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin and Iggy Pop are fans. But what many people don't know about Jonathan is that he is a bird expert of note. I'm not a bird expert, and certainly not of note. And a high school dropout. The high school dropout part is true. He's also our, a friend of ours. All right, that too. And uh, you'll be hearing a lot of Jonathan on the well as he contributed our theme and all our interstitial music. That's right. So, uh, we knew him back in college as a musician, filmmaker, actor. Bon vivant. Bon vivant. <laughs> in fact, I put the two of you in my first student films. That's right, you did. I have distinct memories of being chained to a tree while Jonathan was covered in a very thick layer of mud. Do you remember what he says? I don't. Where are you going then? Back to the northern south. See, I got a duel with a south southerner. We shoot crossbows at each other's heads. I stop it with my tongue. This is fantastic dialogue. And he just represents, I don't know what he represents, Tommy's state of confusion. So he's just, so at the end, Tommy's just like, go away. Go back to the southern south. Oh, I remember my, my first memory of him is uh, uh, he was showing me the bookshelf in his dorm room. And uh, he asked me if I'd read Ulysses which is this absolute Tomic book by James Joyce. I said, no, I haven't yet. And he was like, well, I'm on my third, <laughs> my third reading. I was like, he was 17. God. Anyway, he, he, he applied for this, uh, this fellowship, the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, which funds the recipient to do a completely self-designed, self-directed course of study in whatever you want, with the only caveat being that you have to stay out of the U.S., 
for one entire year. So Jonathan proposed a project called... The Ends of the Earth. I wanted to go to places where people lived really far away from other people. And some of it was just looking at a map and going, well, that's as far as you can go, you know, Tierra del Fuego. <laughs> and so that was the first place I went. And I realized you could get to the Falklands from there. And uh, so I went to the Falklands and I met an ornithologist there who was doing a study of these strange birds on the outer islands of the Falklands. And so I, I pestered him until he took me on as an assistant. And so for seven weeks, I was in the outer islands of the Falklands. And that was what really, you know, opened my mind to this world of, of birds and of the ancient world. Um, I'd say it did more than just open his mind. Uh, He got hooked on birds. Yeah, I love that he he set out to see all these the corners of the planet. (laughs) True to Jonathan, like the first place he goes, he gets completely distracted, gets absorbed (laughs) completely into the first cool thing that he finds, and uh, that has led him on. I mean, that's been his life for the last twenty years. He's still, yeah, he's still working. It it, gets and it gets deeper. Now he has been given a. advance yeah. to, to, to write this book tentatively titled The Feathered People. Uh, which is not about music at all. It's about uh, a group of birds of prey called caracaras that live in South America and uh, their kind of obscure history, where they live and the people who live with them uh, and what they have to tell us about the evolution of the landscapes and wildlife of their continent, but also about the evolution of a certain kind of mind that's actually a lot like ours. These birds are are not what you think of when you think of birds of prey. They're uh, very social, they're intelligent, um, they're curious. There's one species that I kind of first fell in love with down in the Falklands that actually will just come right up to you and like take things out of your bag. And, you know, they're like more like winged raccoons or something. And so uh, they've been an object of my fascination for a really long time. Right now we're at the top of a black brad albatross rock upper penguin king shag colony on South Jason Island. And we're, uh, we're looking for, we can see about four or five adult Johnny Rooks in the air over this colony. And so what we're trying to do is skirt around the colony edge to see if we can get one to jump off a nest. I'll admit it, I am so jealous of Jonathan. <laughs> And I, I've told him this. I have to. I have to live my deferred dreams of being a naturalist vicariously through Jonathan. But luckily for me, luckily for all of us, he has a very, very strong instinct to share these experiences with everyone else. Some of, some of it comes from the fact that I just don't like hoarding things. I don't like hoarding material possessions. I don't like hoarding knowledge. Um, I don't like going and experiencing something incredible if I can't share it in some way. It just feels selfish to me. And so I've been lucky enough to to see a lot of really special things uh, and to try to put them in context within my own mind. It's changed the way that I understand the world and my relationship to it. And I'd like to be able to share that experience if I can through the book. I also, though, try to do it through the music. And those two things, even though they seem like they're, they're pretty far apart, I imagine, um, don't feel like they are to me. In some ways, like the research, certainly the research part of the book, it's just like, it's like being a receiver. You know, you don't transmit in those situations. You just absorb. But then playing music is more like being a transmitter. You know, you're, you're taking all these things, gathering together, and trying to regurgitate them in some way that communicates the meaning of them. 
It's one of the things I don't like about writing is that it's so solitary. It's just like playing chess against yourself all day long. And so... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Checkmate every day. Every day of writing, by the end of the day, I feel gross. And music doesn't make me feel that way. Music um, usually makes me feel charged up and excited. Come on, come on. People having fun is always entertaining. There's always a magnetism to it, and uh, being in a band is often so hard that you forget to do that. And um, if, but if you do, uh, it's, people will respond to it right away. It, it's actually one of the most precious things to preserve about a band or any, I think, creative entity is a sense of, of fun and adventure about it, because that's where a lot of your best ideas come from. And um, if the if the fun is gone, uh, inspiration is much further away it's much harder to get to Play is, is, is play. It's great, and you need it, but it, it takes an enormous amount of energy <laughs> to keep playing. But you would think that when you stop, that that would be a relief. But what happens when it's not? Something musicians talk about all the time is post-tour depression. Even though your first and only thought when you finally get back home usually is, thank God! Um, <laughs> At the same time, within a few days, you tend to sink into a pretty, pretty dark place, like post-tour depression. It's it's real, and uh, it's it's a it's your brain starts to expect this this flood of that kind of feeling that you just don't get anymore once you're you're away from it. But is there solace in knowing that you now have the writing, or is that just another thing you got to deal with? I think without those two poles to move between, I would go crazy. Um, I don't think either one by itself. Um, would would feed me enough to to satisfy me. I mean, I think I'd be a miserable writer if I was only a writer. Like I'd spend enough days um, staring at the screen, and all I want to do is play more music. Has this been, uh, the, the struggle is trying not to to, to just feel perpetually dissatisfied, uh, you know, <laughs> or to try to transmute that feeling, or or to to relax with a to, to be both restless and relaxed at once. I was just working on a record this last year, the Loma record. We would work on it for a couple of weeks and then be away from it for a few months and then come back for a couple of weeks again. We did that several times. And so the amount of time we actually spent on the record it probably didn't add up to more than about two months. Um, but it took place over a longer period of time, and that, that when we weren't working on it, um, I just didn't think about it at all. We didn't, I didn't listen to anything. I didn't. So that when we came back to it, I could sit down in front of the speakers, listen to what we had, and you'd find yourself making decisions that were like, oh, this song's too fast. Or, oh, this song is dumb. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Stuff that you'd never notice when you were like trying to fixate on the sound of the hi-hat. or (laughs) You know, you're like, no, 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 we gotta get that in time. And... The, the way I always think of it is that like, you know, the longer you spend concentrating on something, the smaller you get. And, and by the... 
if, once you've spent too long on a thing, you're just tiny and it seems enormous. You're like little Nemo in Slumberland walking around. And it's all huge. And as you step away, you start to gradually reinflate to your former size. And, you know, <laughs> once you get to be human-sized again, which I think takes at least a few weeks, um, then you can make some, some of the bigger decisions that are really more important. Um, the thing that doesn't help you is when you are thinking about it but not doing anything about it. And having different interests, different places that you can put your focus, um, allows those other things to rest uh, and sort of mature in your mind in the way that they need to. To me, between you know, art that's successful and art that's not successful, or this is sort of practice art, it's the difference between art that says "me, me, me, I am" versus art that says "we are." And that doesn't mean that the ego of the artist has to disappear, but that to the degree that the ego of the artist is there, it's it's there to be a vessel for the ego of other people who want to interact with you. And now, if you're if you're into this just because you need to to um, you know you've got something you want to get off your chest. Um, that can be good because a lot of people feel that way. <laughs> but you have to do it in such a way that other people can can feed off that energy um, and not just be um, crushed by it. What can I tell you? say i'll tell you what this is this is this that's the end of creativity and that means leaving those walls down so that because that's what the ego will do it'll build up areas where you can't go those are probably the scary places to go to right and that's the place where you will where ego will have an instinct to protect itself that it's that's where the ego is so insidious to an artist because the minute you say to yourself okay i'm going to remain open to the possibilities your ego goes yeah man you are so open to the possibility you're more open than anybody to the possibilities <laughs> everybody else is shut down but you <laughs> And that, that can take so many different forms. It's not to say that, that uh, something has to be positive or uplifting in a superficial way in order to be inspiring. Like there's a lot of, and you and I talk about this all the time, the, there's a lot of really dark stuff that makes me feel good, that makes me feel like I'm not alone in the world, um, that reflects what I feel like my experience of life is. Um, 
stuff that's too sugary doesn't feel like life. Uh, and that's why I always like art of all different kinds that has many different undercurrents running through it, things that are in opposition to one another, things that you know have, have sort of a kind of counterpoint, where there's, if there's something beautiful, there's something ugly. If there's something um, dissonant, there's something soothing. If there's something... Because that's more what our experience is like. I wanted to, in doing this interview, learn something. You know, what does Jonathan know that you don't? I don't know, because he and I are so different in so many ways, creatively speaking. Um, his experience of writing, where he said he, he feels gross at the end of the day, I actually feel alleviated mm-hmm. at the end of every day of writing. I feel just like a huge weight off my shoulders in a way that I never really get from, from performance. Performance winds me up. I need um, longer work stints, longer bouts of work than that. I don't feel like I've really gotten into what it is I'm working on until I'm after two hours or so being at it. And uh, So the moment when Jonathan uh, becomes too small is just at the moment where you've inflated to your proper size. Exactly. And, yeah, you'll miss each other on the whole That's, Alice in Wonderland yeah. trip of going up and down. In size. That's why we miss each other. <laughs> I'm huge. He's tiny. <laughs> and you can't see him. And then he's huge and you're tiny. Yeah. Uh, I, for, for me, I, I'm, I'm really going to take that restless and relaxed thing to heart. I love it. Mm, yeah. It's yeah. Um, vague enough that it doesn't become dogma and becomes something else that traps you. And for similar reasons, I'm also going to... Uh, try to keep in mind you know his metaphor about being a receiver and then a transmitter yeah that's the one thing I'm not so good at is that I can't because I can work for very 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 long periods of time that I'm not so good at spotting where I'm drilling down so hard and getting that chapter done or getting that scene done or getting that episode done where I'm, I'm my nose is stuck so to the grindstone that I've I haven't seen that um, it's now j- it's just me and me alone, and I'm not listening. I'm not uh, translating, or I'm not I'm not serving as conduit for something. I, there's no question. I'm just sort of like grinding and grinding and grinding. Not really. It's in those moments where you the door is shut. Mm-hmm. And I asked Jonathan if there was any particular thing he does every day to open the door. Every morning, pretty much, um, I play for, uh, sometimes it's like 30 seconds. I'll just pick it up and start playing. And very surprisingly often, you'll get an idea right there when you first pick it up that's, that's kind of interesting. And when I do that, I'll just record it in my phone. And I put that down and then just go on. And I've gotten a lot of good stuff out of that. Um, I also sometimes will put my guitar like in a funny tuning that I don't know, like the night before, so that when I get up in the morning, you know, I'll be like, you know, oh, wow, what's that, you know? Just, just shocking yourself out of, 
out of having any preconceptions about what you're about to do, I think is one of the most important things you can do for yourself as an artist. sort of off to the left with these great big cliffs but it's got a lot of really grim names for the different points on the cliff there's Mount Misery there's Grave Cove Death's Head uh, I can't remember who, what it, what, who it was that named them but I think they were in a pretty foul mood when it happened but it's a nice windy day there's albatross soaring over this way black rod albatross you've seen penguins porpoising here and there shags the same waves that are making me a little bit nervous are giving the birds a great time our special thanks to jonathan myberg who we wish the best of luck in completing his book working title the feathered people for the book publisher knopf the Well is recorded, edited, and produced by Anson Mount and myself, Brandon Edgens. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. You can find more information about Shearwater at their website, shearwatermusic.com, and also on our website, thewellpod.com, where you can view 25-year-old footage of Jonathan and Anson chained to a tree. And if you really like our show, you can help us out by giving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. We'd really appreciate it. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.